Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk to you, but this is a pre-recorded show. But hey, I'm still here. So if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio. And you can always email me your questions and comments or text me at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. We could not fit it all into the two hours, but hey. We got most of it. Now, this new show, Talk and Tea at 3, will be featured every fifth Sunday. So join me at Pastor Smith live from Mount Zion Baptist Church or here on A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. For our kickoff show, we lead an educational, inspirational, and motivational discussion of the movie Red Tails. Special guest, Charles Floyd Johnson, the film's executive producer, and John B. Hallway, author Red Tails, Black Wings, and Captain Erica L. Jeffries, former Army aviator. Next time, why not just join us live at MountZionLive.com so you can see the video. I will be sure to keep you posted on the next show. Trust me, this discussion is one you don't want to miss. We take you now to talk and tea at 3 Already in progress. 
Ladies and gentlemen, let me take this opportunity to welcome you to this, the first in a series of talks and discussions that we're going to have with regard to critical uh, issues that impact the Christian community and just our community at large. Um, this is what we call Talk and Tea at Three. And Talk at Tea and Three will take place on every fifth Sunday. This is what we'll be doing together. Uh, I'm Leonard N. Smith, in case you don't know who I am, and I am proud today to have with me my friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Michael Fordham, who is a talk show host, and we'll be uh, partnering together as we uh, share together over the next uh, few moments that we have uh, during this session. Mike, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming today. Well, thank you, Pastor, and I appreciate this opportunity. And uh, just to tell everyone a little bit about me, I'm... I started off in this business uh, about four years ago at XM Radio, and um, after the merger, I found myself without a job because the station was removed, and um, I decided to start my own talk show called The Measure of Truth, which pretty much just undoes a lot of um, the spin in media and misconceptions that are out there. So that's pretty much the premise of what I do. I'm always looking for the truth and willing to bring it to you. Well, the wonderful thing about the measure of truth, I am a listener of the measure of truth, <laughs> is that um, this uh, really with your talents, with your gift, and um, with what you do with regard to that, this makes this a great marriage here between the two of us, mm -hmm. taking on some very challenging issues and dealing with it uh, from multiple perspectives, not just a Christian perspective or spiritual perspective, but political and social and all of that kind of thing. And so I'm glad to have you a part of it. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the movie Red Tails. And um, we, uh, I don't know if you had an opportunity to uh, see it, but I believe most of you here did have the opportunity to see it. And uh, I want to just begin by saying to you that I found myself uh, with regard to this movie uh, being extremely appreciative, extremely excited, and most of my excitement uh, was centered around the idea that I was able to go to the movies, not see a lot of sex, not hear a lot of cussing, and not be exposed to a bunch of buffoonery and enjoy a message, although we all know that uh, it was an adaptation, and so it was not necessarily historically accurate, but that wasn't the point of it. It tells a story that I think is very powerful and a story whose time has come. One amazing thing, Mike, um, on Friday, when uh, the January 20th, when the movie was being uh, opened, um, I was at uh, uh, Arlington National Cemetery mm. uh, burying one of our members, and I saw all of the hoopla, I saw the caisson, I saw um, the Air Force band, and I saw all of these people moving around and doing a number of things, and I did not know at that time that that was uh, one of the Tuskegee Airmen who had passed away uh, in October but uh, his uh, burial had been scheduled to coincide with um, the opening of the movie on that day. 
Had I known uh, what was going on, I probably would have stuck my nose in it. Um, <laughs> but it was it was extremely exciting to see. I mean, the pomp and the pageantry is always wonderful. But I think uh, it would have been particularly uh, meaningful to me with that regard, knowing that it was one of the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the movie, Mike? Well, um, it was a very well-done movie. And... Um, the thing that I thought the most about it is, as you said, that there was not a lot of hype involved in it. It was a real story told about real people, and um, it covered their feelings, their position in life, um, their struggles in life with racism and just um, being in the Army, being well-trained and not being able to um, do what they were trained to do. So. Um, but the most interesting thing about this movie, and I don't know if some of you who actually had an opportunity to see it got this, but the way it talked about racism was very interesting because it made racism just seem so stupid because what it did is it put a person's hatred and ignorance ahead of their life, and it really made people decide what is most important. And we saw what changed the minds of of people, regardless of how they had been raised and what they thought previously. It's interesting you should bring that up, Mike, because uh, one of the things I said to a couple of people was that this was perhaps the first movie I have ever gone to that raised a racial issue, and I didn't leave the movie charged. Right. <laughs> um, I, I felt good about it, and uh, I didn't leave with any feelings or frustrations as a result of seeing it. And so I think that that was very, very important and that made uh, a a major impact. Um, One of the things that we both talked about was that this was the first movie I had ever gone through in my life where at the end of the movie, everybody clapped. And so, you know, everybody's kind of, I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> clap. I didn't know you were supposed to clap at a movie, so it was the first time that I had ever experienced that. And I understand that that's being seen all across the country, um, that people are just applauding at the end of the movie um, because it's a, it's a deep message and people feel a great sense of pride and appreciation. Not just African-Americans either. Exactly. Um, and it's mixed audiences are getting the same reviews. Yeah, I saw it in Kingstown in Virginia, and I would say about 50% of the audience was African-American, and it was the same response. Um, the people who sat next to me was a family, and um, the father seemed to have been of age, but he had his whole family come to see this movie. Mm. And you could see it was because he wanted Right. his family to see this movie so it's just interesting you know yeah. and um, it's just amazing I can't wait until we have the um, the uh, actual author of the book mm-hmm. on to ask him mm-hmm. some interesting questions as well and um, but yeah this was this was very well done and to have George Lucas add to mm-hmm. his cinematography and the aerial scenes in this movie were just phenomenal yeah, I felt like I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I was, well, okay. Yeah, I know I've played in that a few times, too. <laughs> it was really exciting. Um, I, I can say that one of the things um, about the movie, it, it gave you a sense of real life, um, and you could almost feel like you were there, mm-hmm. you know, as a result of it. So I, I really, I really, really enjoyed that. I know that there are a number of people here who've uh, seen the movie. How many of you have seen the movie? 
Ooh, yeah, that's great. Buy those tickets. Those are wonderful. Um, it's really important, and I just want to say right about now how important it is to go see the movie and not buy the bootleg copy. Um, it's really important to do that, and this is not just about getting George Lucas' his money back, but this is about sending a message to Hollywood that people will go to see a movie that's not buffoonery um, with an all-black cast. Um, and I think that that's interesting um, within itself. So it's really important that we go and we see it. Well, Mike, we've got a couple of people who are going to be brave enough to come up and tell us exactly uh, how they felt to give us some movie, uh, some movie reactions. And so um, Deshaun Dorsey is uh, going to come first. If you make it to that microphone over there, I think that uh, Deshaun will be able to uh, uh, hear what you have to say about the movie. Tell us. Well, um, actually, I saw the movie last last Sunday, and I thought it was really a great effort on the part of George Lucas and the cast. Um, I really love the movie, so I'm always intrigued to see how things will play out theatrically, and I thought that George Lucas's cinematography was really amazing. I also thought that the cast members did a really good job recreating these um, these heroes, these American heroes, in a fictionalized manner, but in a manner which also was easily translatable. So I felt that no matter what age you were, you would understand what happened during World War II. You would understand um, how the Tuskegee Airmen came into being. You would understand their contribution to America's war effort during World War II. And I also felt that because it was fictionalized and was an adaptation, that maybe for those who were in attendance who weren't familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, it might intrigue them and have them go out and research and learn more about the Tuskegee Airmen. So I thought it was a real learning moment, too. That's great. I, I agree with you. I think a, a lot of people are now, they've just discovered the Tuskegee Airmen. And they're, 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 they've become heroes all over again. Um, which is really exciting, and they're popping up everywhere, doing a lot of things, and a lot of people are really excited about it. Did you, um, was there a favorite part of the movie for you? Um, well, I did like it when they um, shot down Pretty Boy's plane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was uh, a fighter pilot that was really kind of knocking off all the American aircraft. So I really did, um, that was a really good Sean, you're from Baltimore, you're I'm so violent. Did I see you on the wire? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. All right. Um, uh, next, Deborah Spriggs is going to come and uh, share some things with us about the movie, her reactions uh, to it. Um, it was a great movie. I don't care what time you went to see it, whether it was in the day or in the evening, it was a great movie to see. Okay. Hi. Um, I hate war movies. I despise them. And I only went because it was a historical movie, and my husband wanted me to go. And once I got into the movie, I, I was so proud. I really I enjoyed it so much that I would definitely go again. And it was so exciting that I was holding my hands, and I was squeezing them tight mm -hmm. during all the excitement. And I was like, crying and you know, I was just I was I was so upset in some of the movie I wouldn't say anything about the movie some people didn't see it. But um I was so proud. I was a little irritated at the way they described the Negro men 
um, the fighter pilots, and that was the only per the only bad part about the movie that I you know that I didn't like. But um, it made me so proud when I walked out of the movie. I would definitely see it again. And I, I just loved it. I loved okay. it. Yeah. Now, as saying that you loved it and you there was that emotionally charged portion of the movie uh, for you. What exactly was it that caused you to be uh, emotionally charged? Just the description or was it some kind of... Uh, well, he got involved with all the characters and they were so personable and you just got to know each one of them and I felt like they were uh, someone in my family. You thought they were your cousins? <laughs> 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 I've really been involved in, in, uh, in each character, and uh, when it was the sad parts, I cried, and, you know, the parts when they were fighting, I was really uh, tense, and I, I think I made a lot of noise during the movie. <laughs> <laughs> was that you I heard? <laughs> Deborah, you know, but um, he he always watches me when he knows there's a sad part, and I'm I'm just booing on on the, you know in front of everybody. And I'm trying not to cry, and he's looking at me, and I'm like, please don't look at me. <laughs> but it, it was really moving. I, I enjoyed it immensely. All right, thank you very much. We appreciate the comment. Mike, um, just before our next. Uh, a reaction person comes up. Um, at the end of the movie, when everybody was leaving, I, you know, I'm not a credit person. I don't like, I don't like watching credits. Credits are a waste of time. But I watched the credits. Right. And a lot of people were watching the credits. Exactly. I couldn't get up and leave because I know. I couldn't believe that. People were crying and stuff. You know, <laughs> watching the credits. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things about it, and the reason I bring up the credits now, is because, um, and perhaps uh, Mr. Johnson will talk about this, is that. One of the things that makes this movie important is that it is not just an all-black cast. It is not just an all-African-American front, but there are African-Americans in the back as well. Um, you talk about the executive producer. You're talking about the music director. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about uh, uh, all kind of production and writers and all that kind of stuff. So it was... It was a great team, and, and I'm sure that uh, Mr. Johnson will talk about that, that, that it was, I mean, it was a lot that came together. It was a lot of effort um, to make this happen. And it began in the mind of George Lucas in 1988. And it took all of his time to bring it. And one of the challenges um, was that Hollywood did not want to finance a movie project of this kind with an all black cast because they didn't think you would buy tickets to it. Mm -hmm. They probably would have been right some other time. That's right. But it's
time has come. And we showed them. It was number two. <laughs> that weekend, which is really important. It was, it was number two. Wish it could have been number one, but we like vampires more than we like red tails. <laughs> All right, our next uh, reaction will come from uh, Rhoda Saunders. Did you uh, come now? Get some insight into that a little bit later. 
But um, uh, thank you so very much for, your, you. for your comments and reactions. Okay. All right. Um, what we're going to uh, do is now there's some young people in there just came back. Um, do I have a volunteer to come and tell tell me something? Come on. Yay. Hi. Uh, tell everybody who you are. Oh, I'm Kirsten. And you're beautiful. I just want to know why was that your favorite part? I mean, I need a little help here. Help me out. Because he was good. <laughs> I'm not accepting that answer. Red Tails. 
and um, you were a major part of this endeavor. And first of all, we just want to hear uh, what would you want us to know uh, about Red Tails? Well, what I really wanted everyone to know, first of all, thank all of you for having gone, if you've gone already. If you haven't, certainly I know you will. But the, the film took a very long time to get to the screen uh, and to our local theaters. Uh, and you may have read it, it was a 23-year journey to get it to uh, where it is now. Uh, and much of that is credited also to George Lucas, who had a great passion for the story of the Tuskegee Airmen and for what they accomplished. Uh, and he never lost sight of that in his consciousness for making the film, nor did I. And we worked together very much over the years to make sure it was um, something that got to the screen because we felt that the Tuskegee Airmen were actually in many ways part of the whole beginning of uh, integrating the, um, the uh, armed forces. Uh, that when they finished in World War II, uh, you know, they had made great strides to where the bomber pilots asked for the Red Tails, and uh, there was the beginning of really learning how uh, the uh, races could uh, uh, really associate and make headway. Make so, um, their story was so impressive for us that that's how long we stayed with it and uh, and uh, enjoyed uh, kind of getting to know all of them and to uh, make this film. Uh, about how many years were you actively involved in the project? I was actually involved the entire time. I got a phone call from the Lucasfilm uh, company, Mr. Lucas, about 1988. And we worked on the film to try and get a script that we liked from 88 to about 1995 or so. And I, I know you all, all recall, those of you who are old enough to remember, that in about 95, 96, HBO did a film, a wonderful film, on the Tuskegee Airmen. Right. And uh, that was when they called Mr. Lucas and said, how would you like to do this HBO film with us? And he said, I, I'd love for you to do it. I want to see it on the big screen. So you guys go make your film and I'll come back to it. And then we had um, uh, everybody, I wanted everybody to know, we had about a 10 year lull in which Mr. Lucas wanted to work on some of the new Star Wars prequels. And about 2007, the phone rang again and it was uh, Lucas film and he said, what should we do when we grow up? And I said, Red Tails? And he said, you got it. Wow, that's great. That was quite a journey. But uh, as we can see, it was well worth the journey. I mean, it was absolutely excellent. Um, we talked about um, how uh, African Americans were involved in the project, not just as um, a cast, but also on the backside of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's given us so much um, pride about the project is oftentimes um, we have uh, young men and women or, or men and women in front of the camera, but we don't always have them behind the camera. And this project really was blessed with the fact that we had a black pr producer and myself. We had a black director, a young man whose name was Anthony Hemingway. Uh, we had two African-American writers, Aaron Magruder and John Ridley. And the composer is uh, an African-American by the name of Terrence Blanchard. So that was really, when you get the key elements of a film, that was also something I think that Lucas wanted to make sure to do, that it was an African-American story, 
So not only do we have um, actors in front of the camera, but we have principals behind the camera to tell our story, and I think that was very important. But it took someone like Lucas and his ability to finance the film to get it done. It was not that easy to tell. But the thing that I'm most really pleased about is that the African-American communities around the country have understood the importance of telling a story like this and have rallied their support as, as the congregation there. Let me ask you a question. Um, we know that it came in number two um, of the opening weekend. How's it doing now? It's doing quite well. It, it was number four this week. There were two new pictures that opened above it and then The Awakening, and it was number four. And it earned, I think I read this morning, $10 million for the second week. So uh, I think it's doing uh, pretty well. And, you know, we've got all of February, which is Black History Month, and I think we'll find that it will, the picture will have legs and run and hopefully continue to, uh, to do well. And it's not so much about how much it makes, although that's certainly important in the Hollywood business standard, but really important that if we want to see more films like Red Tails and more films about our culture and history, it's important to know that we want to see them and that we support them. Uh, otherwise, they, go, they, they have the first ability to say, well, you don't watch your own history, and, and that we don't want. Right. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'm going to allow my uh, my co-pilot here, um, Michael Fordham, to ask you a couple of questions. But uh, having worked with, uh, during the course of the movie, having worked with uh, some of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, can you tell us about your experience with that? Yes, um, very much so. Um, that was probably one of the most uh, impressive and salient uh, uh, things I did with the film. When I got started working on Red Tails back in 1988-89, I got to go out and meet the Tuskegee Airmen because I had to kind of find out how they wanted to help us with the film, how we could interface with them. So I got to meet several of them, of them in the beginning, and the network grew. And so I met uh, uh, Lee Archer, who was close to being an ace for the Red Tails. I met uh, Roscoe Brown, who was the president, the current president, he's not any longer, but he was the president of Brock's Community College, and uh, a number of the men across the country, and they then pointed me in the direction of so many of the airmen all over the country, and I went and I interviewed them, and uh, I became impressed because they not only were young men who flew um, in the war, in they were 19, 20, and 21, but when they got out, many of them remained uh, and became officers, uh, in the military, uh, or but they some came home and they were captains of industry, they were educators, they were businessmen. So they were really outstanding men, men, young men who turned into outstanding senior citizens, and I learned so much from them. I almost felt at times I had uh, hundreds of great uncles because they were just that wonderful to me, and it was great to learn about them. And they've impressed me and inspired me ever since. Wow, that's great. Well, let me give you the Michael Fordham, and he'll ask you a couple of questions. Well, Mr. Johnson, I have to applaud you for, you know, producing an excellent film. But um, one of the underlying themes of this film was that the war against racism is won by excellence, and um, it was an, a theme that just it was just empowering throughout the whole movie. And um, the way the racism portion of it, too, was represented, it wasn't overdone and it wasn't underdone. It was just enough 
to get the point across. And just tell us about um, how that was able to be um, integrated in this film and how you guys got the right mix to be able to get this story across and make it as realistic as it was. Well, that's a, a very, very uh, insightful uh, question, Michael. And, and and what I wanted to say about that was that, you know, bringing a film like this, which is a historical film, to the screen is not easy because you do have to find a balance for an audience. And uh, we felt we couldn't do a story that was just about men who were victims. Uh, uh, we couldn't just say, oh, you know, the, the, white, the white pilots in the military didn't want them to fly and they were treated badly. We had to find a way to balance that by saying they were, they were heroes. Yes, it was true that the system was not in favor of them being pilots, but these were men who said, we have a job to do, we want to fight for our country, and we have the right to do it, and we are pilots who will do that. So I think we found that balance, and we didn't want to tell this film, we wanted this film for our history, but we wanted it for American history, because it is not just our story, it is truly American history. And when you want it for American history as well, you want to be able to bring in people of all races to see the, the, the picture and have it relate to them. So I think we found that balance. And I, I think the amazing thing about it is it's such a wonderful balance for our young people to to talk about the, uh, the equality that, that comes out of being, um, you know, excellent at what you do and standing on mission. I, I was talking the other day to a friend of mine whose children, they hear two young uh, boys who were pre-teenagers, and they had seen the film, and it was so impressed on them that the next morning they were getting ready to go to school, and one of them was late, and the other said to the other, now remember, like easy lightning, you got to stay on mission. <laughs> 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 I just think that's, that's wonderful, and the other counterpart to that story is Mr. Lucas and I had a screening of the film before it opened, and uh, two young white boys uh, were in the audience, and as we came out of the picture, they were probably nine and ten, and we saw them playing in a, the parking lot of the theater, and one was easy and one was lightning, and George was like, I think we accomplished our purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Again, well done, and just thank you for your time today. You are so welcome, and thank you all again for being so supportive. It is something that we often have great pride in, and we hope that Red Tails is the beginning of many more films like this. Well, with people like you behind the scenes making it happen, we are confident. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I love NCSI. I'm just saying <laughs> that um, we are confident that your gifts and your talents and your contributions can certainly bring to the screen uh, our story. And uh, I want to thank you so very much for doing that and continuing to do that. And uh, hopefully doing that will pay the bills for you, too. <laughs> so we really appreciate your time today. Let me answer, if would, do you have time to take maybe two questions? Sure, from the I can do two. Okay, how about this? All right, go ahead, step right there to the microphone. And... Uh, We'll uh, get two questions. If, if somebody else has one, if you'll get right behind her or get to that mic over there. Yeah, go to that one. Hi, Mr. Johnson. Thank you so much for being a part of this project. I, too, like Kirsten, saw the movie twice. And um, I wanted to ask, I understand that a lot of the studios would not pick it up, but I look at the success of Tyler Perry and, and can't understand why. 
Is it because of the content of the, um, you know, the subject matter? I mean, that's the question I have. Why wouldn't the students pick it up based on the success of Tyler Perry's movies? Thank you. I, I'm having a little trouble hearing you, but is your question uh, the success of Tyler Perry? What, what is the reason for that success? No, why? Because of Tyler Perry's success, why wouldn't the movie studios pick this sort of project up based on the success that Tyler Perry's movies have had? There's an audience for for um, black um, stories and themes, so why not this? Is was it because of the content of this particular story? You know, I, I think it's the content is partially it, but but really in in Hollywood terms of of uh, business, it really was a dollars and cents decision. Here's the difference when you look at a Tyler Perry film. Tyler has made a very successful business model in that I don't think he spends probably more than, I don't know his budget per se, but I'm going to say 10 or $15 million, let's say, on a film for the production budget. And it, and he's proven that there is an audience for a film that where they can certainly make 25 to $50 million or more, depending on the nature of the film, so the model, the business model works. The difference here was this film was 58 to 60 million dollars, and so they, they had no guarantee that at that amount of money that the box office would be uh, there to return the, the investment in, in a way that would make sense for them. It, so it simply came down to not so much the content alone, but can this business model work? And they didn't believe it would work. And that's why I think you see such a huge rally among the African-American community uh, to sort of get out and say, we, we know this will work, even at $50 dollars and cents, even at that budget. Wow. Okay, we've got another question for you. Mr. Jones, I did want to thank you very much for the work that you put into Red Tails. And one of the biggest surprises that I had when I was watching the credits at the end uh, concerning seeing Aaron Magruder as one of the screenwriters. And I wanted to ask you concerning what uh, the process was in terms of bringing him in as a writer and how was the decision made to actually approach him to be a screenwriter and what sort of uh, effects did he have on the writing uh, as part of the movie? Uh, Reverend Smith or, or, or Michael, could you repeat that? I have Because of the distance, I have a hard time understanding it. I wanted to ask that uh, one of the biggest surprises that I had as part of the movie was seeing Aaron McGruder as a screenwriter for the movie. And I wanted to ask what, as during the, the movie was being made, how was the decision made to bring in a new screenwriter? And how was that uh, decision made to approach Aaron McGruder uh, to work on the script for Red Tails? And what sort of talents and, and things did he bring to the table that helped change the movie? I, I, I'll tell you exactly how that happened. We went through a number of writers to find John Ridley. Uh, and John had written several things and is, is continuing to write and is a very talented um, uh, writer. But when we finished the picture, there was a feeling that it, it also needed to have some humor. Uh, and so there, there was a, 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 a bringing in of Aaron Magruder, who we all know basically as the creator of Boondocks, to try and look at the film and bring uh, some, some, a little lightness to it. And of course, George is a criticized for that, but I think that uh, that was where it came from. So Aaron did a rewrite based on the fact that we were looking for a little levity in the film, and he provided some of the, the uh, lighter moments, and, and that's how that 
was chosen to be done. He was also a huge fan of, of uh, George Lucas and the Airmen. We interviewed him initially for the picture to, to write the film, but we decided on Wrigley. But when we decided to do the pickups for some of the reshooting, we remembered him and brought him back for the humor. And that's how that came about. Wow, great. All right, Mr. Johnson, I got two quick questions that have been sent to me via Twitter. And the uh, first question is, uh, do you believe that the success of the film is enough to fuel the behavior, uh, behavior of change in Hollywood towards black films? Um, well, you know, Hollywood is kind of a strange place where it's hard to say because we've seen other films that have come about which we thought should make a change in their attitude, and uh, and then sometimes it doesn't. I, I do think that this picture, because of the notice that the African-American community has made and the support it's made, makes them stand up and take notice. And I, I know you guys have read about, everyone has read about the fact that People have come by busloads with students and groups, and our social organizations have so supported it. But I think it made them all take notice, and the first week's um, box office surpassed their tracking estimates. So I, I would hope that all of those factors will play into uh, changing attitudes. Uh, but I would, I would also say that oftentimes what gets greenlighted in Hollywood is based on do you think it will make money? And so you still have to deal with that that that, uh, that that way of thinking. Money is the bottom line. All right, last question, and then we'll let you go enjoy sunny California. Um, uh, as I understand it, Red Tails was initially released to limited theaters nationwide. Any plans to expand to more theaters? Yes, um, it was it was. It, it, it's been increased by about 100 theaters from last week, which is good because I think the, the in, in Washington, D.C., I, had, I read Atlanta, New York, and Los Angeles, theaters were sold out the first week, and they had to add shows. And I think as a result of that, they increased the, uh, the number of theaters this week. And, and that was a very good thing. But if you, if you look at the number of theaters we started with, we actually started with fewer theaters than most of the movies that were in the top ten last week. So uh, that was a good thing that they did it. Let's hope maybe with the 10 million, uh, I think it was 10 million put for a box office this week, they will increase those theaters again next week. Wow, that's great. Mr. Johnson, thank you so very, very, very much for spending this wonderful time with us. You are a credit to your profession, and we thank you for what, what you do, and we'll be looking for you in theaters soon. Bye-bye. All right. How about that? Wasn't that fun? Uh, a lot of great questions. Y'all were like kind of digging in and everything. I'm like, y'all trying to sit up here with me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> this is my show. What you doing? Uh, but uh, that was wonderful and it, it was exciting. If you think that that was exciting, then we've got um, a couple more guests that you're going to find really exciting. And what we're going to do now is um, we're going to... Um, uh, play a um, video, and while this video is being played, it will give you an opportunity. If you'll quickly, um, how many minutes is this? Is this four minutes? Is that a four-minute video? 
three minutes, two minutes, <laughs> 30 seconds. It ain't happening. <laughs> okay. It is what it is. So um, while it's moving around, what we're going to do is we're going to trans transition to get our next guest up here. And um, it will also... Um, also, um, uh, also, if you need to freshen up your tea, I want you to know that uh, our tea service is being provided by Tea Time today, which is um, the business of uh, Francine Morris. Stand up, Francine, so everybody can see you. She and our able assistant back there are making sure that uh, you're refreshed, so if you want to do that while the... Uh, video is going and you can look from different parts of the room. It's uh, three minutes, so uh, if you'll uh, do that, uh, let's go to the video now because everybody just walk in front of the camera. <laughs> I told y'all not to walk down there. Okay. Uh, what we want to do uh, now is we are, are really, really uh, happy and privileged um, to have a very special guest uh, with us today. Uh, many of you uh, already know that um, there is a reality that whenever a movie uh, comes to the screen, there are literally um, a lot of pieces that come together to bring it to the screen. And uh, in a movie such as this one, uh, when you talk about uh, how it came to be, um, you pull pieces from a lot of different places to be able to make this happen. And today we have a very special guest um, with us today, uh, Mr. John B. Hallway, who is uh, the author of Red Tales, uh, an oral history of T Tuskegee Airmen. Mm -hmm. Now it's now a movie. You see that on there? Uh-huh. Um, but uh, also... Um, even uh, before this, um, there was Red Tails Black Wings, um, which is uh, something you might want to get. I don't even know if you can get that anymore now. And if you get it, you're going to pay for that now. That's like, that's like a real classic. I mean, I saw some on Amazon for like 200 bucks. Oh, really? Yeah. I you write more. You guys, yeah, you need to write some more. Um, um, but uh, we're grateful to have him with us today. And so come on, let's welcome Mr. John Hallway. Uh, Hallway, let me uh, just kind of begin by uh, saying to you, thank you for the contributions that you made, uh, not only to um, the story of the Tuskegee Airmen, but what you have done for baseball with regard to African Americans. You've told the African American story. And so having written a number of works on baseball, uh, how did you come to the place where you wanted to talk about the red tail? Well, I can't fly. <laughs> I'm not black. I don't know. I don't know how to. But anyway, I went to a uh, a meeting, uh, a reunion of the Red Tails here in Washington. Must have been 25 years ago now. I was covering it, didn't know what it was about. So, as I listened, I said, "Gee, this is interesting. I never knew this. Oh, really? Is that really? I don't know that." So, uh, I had lunch with uh, 
In the movie, he is Major, uh, well, he's uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. with a pipe. His real name is Frankie Roberts. I had lunch with him and his wife, and he started cluing me in. I asked him about this and that, and he was starting to educate me. And uh, then he said, you should really talk to so-and-so. I said, I'd call him up and go and see him. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon I, like eating peanuts, you can't quit once you get started. And uh, I kept finding all these old uh, men. Old men, they're not that much older than me. But anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's how I kind of got into it. Once you get started, it gets so interesting, you keep going. Wow. Now... Having um, told the story of baseball and the story of Red Tail, are there any uh, parallels in the stories that you could uh, mention? Oh, yeah. They, uh, they could be exchanged, really. Uh, one flew planes, the other one uh, hit balls. But, uh, yeah, they all faced the kind of the same problems at the same time. They were about the same age. Well, some of my ball players were a little bit older than the Tuskegee Airmen, and because I started that earlier when they were still alive. But yeah, you, you can see the two stories are really a story. Right. Yeah. Right. So the the story of the um, the red tails is a story now that everybody's interested yeah. in. Is there a particular aspect of the story that you would suggest for somebody who's just um, discovering the red tails. Is there any particular aspect you would suggest that they consider uh, well, learning? In my opinion, if you're really interested in writing, I'd pick a different subject and that hasn't been done yet. Not that you couldn't find more things in the red tails, but uh, you, the, long, the more you probe, the more you find. Uh, but uh, look for something that hasn't been done yet. And... Uh, for example, I just finished a book on uh, the GIs in Korea, the old black regiment. I don't know why I always write about blacks. I tell you why, because you've got all these stories that no one else has written yet. Thank you. Somebody needs to tell our story. Thank you. <laughs> so if, if you're a person who would like to write something, is Start with your grandfather saying, Grandpa, what was things like back in the old days and see what happened. Maybe you'll find out, hey, that's a good subject. I think I'll write more about it. I think I'll talk to more people. So uh, There's a lot of stories left to, left to write. Uh, I just finished this book on the uh, GIs in, in Korea. Now, they were about five years younger than the Red Tails, and a few more of them are still with us. Now, those guys didn't go to college like the Red Tails did. They weren't middle class with uh, with professional parents and were fairly well off. They were kids, guys, who needed a job, and the only job they could find was the Army, so they joined the Army. They didn't know what was waiting for them. Boy, they wouldn't have done it if they'd known, because the Korean War was a pretty bad war, if you were in it. Uh, and so this will be a different... They were still There was still racism in America, but it was coming to an end and uh, these guys uh, fought without much nobody gave them much credit for it and uh, uh, what interests me is when they when they got out of the army and got married and raised kids their kids grew up to go to college their kids grew up to uh, go on to very successful careers one of them was a detective in Los Angeles had a lot to do with, with uh, 
the riots and getting that calmed down and getting the two groups friends again. And, uh, so the young people who came from fathers who were not middle class college educated blacks, they turned out to be pretty good. And uh, so uh, there's a lot of these stories that are still left to tell. I think someday maybe we'll get to the point where you can say, well, I think we've hit most of the important ones now. Maybe now I'll write about China. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to write about black, but you know, I think there's a lot of stories we've got to catch up on, so go ahead and catch up on those, and then maybe write about Ireland. I'm Irish, so you can write about Ireland. <laughs> you, you, you brought up a, a, a very good point. Um, and since in this segment we really want to talk about the men and not necessarily about the movie, yeah. um, and I think that's a piece that that people do not know about the Red Tails that many of them came from professional yeah. um, families. Right. They were not the farm boy in Mississippi, um, basically. That they came from professional parents, sort of like um, Dunbar High School yeah. in uh, Washington. Yeah. Um, it was the M Street School for uh, a number of years. And during that time when it was the M Street School, um, you could not go to that school unless your parents were professional um, because it was known for excellence in education. And so many opportunities, um, when things began to open up, were given to individuals that came from professional families or college-educated um, can you just kind of tell us a little more about um, the Red Tails and, and their professional parents and education? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, some some were the grandsons of slaves and uh, were uh, tenant farmers, and uh, they didn't have all the advantages to start with. They had a harder road to get up to where the other fellows were. Uh, so uh, there were there were both kinds of people who joined the Air, Air Corps. Uh, the, uh, and the black uh, ball players had the same kind of, uh, they faced the same difficulties. Uh, and uh, well now of course, it's hard for you, a lot of you who are younger to, to kind of know what it was like back then. I went to a white high school in Alexandria it never, never occurred to me that you know that was normal. That was about the way things were. <laughs> and uh, when I went to Iowa University, uh, the black guys went lived in their rooming houses. White guys lived in their rooming houses. It wasn't exactly racism, but on the other hand, you know, it was kind of racism. And uh, those things are changing now. So. When I was in Alexandria, I sat in front of the bus. Well, I didn't think that was unusual. Everybody had, had different seats on the bus. And now, of course, that's, that is unusual. It isn't normal anymore. So uh, the Tuskegee Airmen did a heck of a lot to uh, change that. And I think the ball players did, too. I mean, uh, Jackie Robinson did help. But you know, one of the older ball players he uh, told me he says they said they say Jackie Robinson uh, paved the way. He didn't pave the way. We did. The older guys we paved the way. That's why Jackie's up there now because we we set 
If it wasn't for us, he wouldn't have been up there. He needed black coaches, he needed black teams, he needed to get noticed by the white teams. And so the older black players who didn't go through the uh, uh, through the pearly gate store and had to wait outside and watch him go through. Uh, but they, they were just as important in getting where we are now as the pioneers uh, who were the first blacks to get into white baseball. The older guys really had a lot to do with them getting there. And that's, I think, something we should think about and remember. It uh, takes a lot of people to uh, to make it happen. Right. The, the Red Tails um, basically, um, at the end of World War II, uh, they, everybody went their way, did their thing, but they were no longer together as that unit as we, as we know it. Um, many of them went on to do some pretty phenomenal things um, as a result of that experience. Can you uh, tell me, based upon your research and based upon your communication with uh, 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 many of the Red Tails, do you think that that experience, that World War II experience, was the basis for their success, or was it just that they had it in them? Well, yeah, they had it in them, but they needed to have the uh, opportunity, which their parents didn't have. <coughs> well, yeah, some of them, of course, accomplished things uh, in their generation, but it was harder for them to do what the what the Dread Tales did because it just wasn't their time yet. So the Red Tails took advantage of the chance. This is our chance now, and they did it. And uh, uh, <coughs> their kids have chances now that in other fields to uh, go on and uh, medicine or whatever it may be. What was what was the most fascinating part of writing this book? <coughs> oh dear, I mean, uh, I, I spent... I talked to Charles Johnson, uh, so that's 15 years or so ago. Uh, so I've been working on it as long as he's been working on it. And I'm still working on it, I'm still finding out new things, and we'll have to update this book because we've got new things to tell. Uh, and uh, well, uh, I, I guess I've lost my train of thought. It was a, was a brilliant idea when I <laughs> that's how they start out. I mean, I understand. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, you can do that. You, you're how old are you? Me? Yeah. I'm forty nine. <laughs> Again, 82. 82. So at 82, we we totally understand you. You've forgotten more than I know, so it's okay. I haven't forgotten a lot. <laughs> it's okay. I understand. Uh, this Mike, my friend, uh, Mike wants to ask you a couple of questions. Well, Mr. Holloway, I just wanted to know um, when you had this story, you developed it, and it was pretty much completed. At a certain point when you started shopping it to publishers, you didn't publish it yourself, right? No, no. So, did you find that this story, as important as it was, that you were having a hard time finding people who wanted to hear this story? Oh, yeah. Uh, I did get a nice lady who had a smaller publishing house out in uh, uh, New Mexico, and she she uh, took, took it on. And I think she deserves a lot of credit uh, for uh, getting that into print. Uh, yeah, there was resistance. You just shop it around and you get your rejections. And what were they telling you? 
Well, I don't know. They don't tell you why they're rejecting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they guess. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not well written. Maybe that was a reason. What about friends and family? When you told them some of the information that you found in researching this book, what was their reaction to it? Um, well, I said, John, do whatever you want. You know, uh, it's your uh, book, it's your life. Go ahead and uh, spend it that way. <laughs> but did you find anyone who couldn't believe what was written in this book, the excellence of these men and their flying ability? Uh, the impact that they had on the war? Was I'll tell you a little uh, uh, different uh, uh, experience. When I was writing about the black ball players when I first got into it, you ever hear of Josh Gibson? Yeah, yeah he's a great, great player. He might have been sort of the Babe Ruth of the black. And I read an article in the Washington, sent it to the Washington Post, and uh, the editor sent it back to you know, with and uh, scrolling in the margin, he said, "No, this isn't possible. No, this couldn't be." You know. Uh, yeah, no, he really did. It's true. And, and uh, finally, his boss said, "All right, we'll publish it." Uh, so that happens. People just wouldn't. The guy must be making it up. It couldn't be true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <And> it was. <laughs> well, thank you. That um, was curiosity of mine. And um, you said that there's actually more information that you'll be adding to yes, this. Yes. Uh, uh, something new that you discovered. Well. Um, they made the point in the Red Tails, it's very important, they stuck with the bombers. You know, usually if you're a fighter pilot, you want to get all those uh, swastikas on your plane. The more enemy you shoot down, the more promotions you get, the more the more the girls come over. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were pretty mad when uh, Colonel Bullard in the movie, uh, actually B.O. Davis is his real name, when he said, no, you can't do that, no, you gotta, you got to stick with the bombers, I'm sorry, you can't go out and chase the fighters, and they were mad, because, you know, that's why they joined the Air Corps, that's why everybody does. They saw all these movies with the white uh, scars flying behind, and that's what they wanted to be when they joined the Air Corps, no, no you can't do it. And uh, so, uh, but they, they, the point in the movie was, as a result, they saved more American bombers than the white pilots. The white pilots say, oh, there's a, there's a jury, I'll go fly him, get him, you know. Well, when they're off chasing that guy, another guy is shooting down a bomber that he's supposed to be protecting. And uh, the Red Tails were not allowed to do that. They probably would have if they were allowed to, but nobody would. Their boss said, no, you better not, boy. No. Uh, he was a tough old guy. So as a result, uh, we did save a lot of uh, American bombers. And not only do you save ten men by it, when you save one bomber, you save ten crewmen in it, but you save that bomber to bomb Hitler some more the next day. You know, you keep losing bombers and you're not going to win the war. So uh, I think the Red Tails uh, only now are starting to get credit for really... At once we thought that they never lost a bomber. And I believed it, and I put it in my first book. But now new research has shown, yeah, they did lose a few, but a lot less than the whites did. And uh, the guy who made it happen was Colonel Ballard in the movie. His real name, B.O. Davis, and he lived here in Arlington. Mm -hmm. He died at the age of 90, but until he died, he would walk across the uh, bridge to Georgetown every morning, come back, <laughs> well into his late 80s, he was still doing that. Uh, and he's the guy who really, uh, 
made the Tuskegee Airmen do what they did against their own wishes sometimes, but uh, because he was so strict, uh, they did write a, a very good record in Saving Bombers. And that's what the movie, I think, said, and I hope you all got that from the movie. It's a very important thing. And so I'm doing more research onto the uh, politics of the uh, Air Corps. Because the generals in the Air Corps were just like the lieutenants. They, they just thought the only thing we got to do in the Air Corps is shoot down the enemy. And it was hard to convince them that, no, the most important thing you got to do is save the bombers. So you save the pilots' lives, and you also save the bomber to hit Hitler again tomorrow. And they uh, they did it, and it was thanks to P.O. Davis. His father was the first black general. He was the second black general in the American Army. Uh, and... Uh, Every one of them, Tuskegee Airmen, will tell you the same thing. It was B.O. Davis that made us succeed. Let me ask you a question. Um, someone was sharing with me that all of the Red Tails were not fighters, that there were some who actually flew bombers. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting story now. You can't get it all into one movie, but yes, mm -hmm. they formed a, a group of bombers, and uh, they never got into combat. The reason why was the white generals who were in charge of them were doing everything they could to prevent them. Uh, you know, you've heard about they wouldn't let them in the officers' club, and so they mutinied. They weren't really mutinying so much as demanding, like a sit-in later. They called it a sit-in later, but these lieutenants would go into the club anyway, and it was against the rules, and so they tried to court-martial them, and uh, uh, so. Uh, that's why the, that's why the bombers never actually bombed anybody. The funny thing is, and it's not funny. I mean, the sad thing is that the American generals were shooting that outfit down more than the Germans or the Japanese ever could have. <laughs> and so uh, the racism was really doing the Japanese job for them. Uh, we won't even let the Japanese have a crack at shooting them down. We'll shoot them down before they get there. And then, so that's where racism shows up as kind of a stupid, uh, self-defeating thing. <laughs> we could have had those bombers in the air doing some help. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, too bad that uh, just some people didn't see it that way. They just It's funny, it's like two, uh, I say funny, of course it's not funny, you had two American armies, one was black and one was white, and they were both fighting for America. But the black America was different from the white America, and the white America says, no, you can't go to our schools and you can't sit in the front of the bus and whatnot. So they were each defending the kind of America that they were believing in. <coughs> and uh, that was the way it was. It was the world that they faced, uh, and uh, they did their darndest to... Uh, uh, you can't just hit it head on, because you'll lose, definitely. I mean, 90% of the country's white, and the other 10 is black, and you'll never win that way. But they were able to go around the edges and, you know, uh, get the job done, and... Uh, uh, I think they did there's a lot of credit for for just biting their lip and not not fucking back and you know just going out and doing a job and and uh, and succeeding and they, and they have had a lot of whites that helped uh, every so often. You can't get along without some white help, and not in America. You can't get along. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, if I could ask George Lucas to change the script a little bit, I mean, there were guys that say, here, let me show you this. Here, I can do this. Uh, I'll show you how to do it. And, uh, and uh, they were there when it was necessary, and they stepped in, and they played a role, and then then they faded away, and the, the story continued. Uh, so I think uh, there were a lot of, uh, if, if you had a longer movie, longer than this one, you could bring in that, that fact that here's a guy who laid his own career on the line to help help out and do uh, Everybody who had a chance to to help and did help was all part of the story. I got a, a, a question and we're going to give the audience an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, in recent days, um, uh, as I understand it, that the red tails are not all pilots. No, no. That's true. And so they were mechanics or good whatever. point yes okay. uh, the uh, a story you could tell if you had another 15 minutes in the movie to tell it is that that last raid on Berlin they were told uh, we're going to Berlin well Berlin we've never been able we can't fly that far we don't have enough fuel to go that far and come back okay we got to get some tanks General Davis or Colonel Davis said get the bigger tanks well, where do you get them? Well, you, you, that's your problem, but you've got to get off in the morning. We've got to fly tomorrow morning. Well, they found, uh, they learned that the train loaded with tanks was going to be at such and such a place at such and such a time. They jumped in their trucks. They broke all sorts of speed records, got there. They uh, they called it the great train robbery. They waved a piece of paper in the face and didn't say anything. It was tomorrow's menu or something. <laughs> <laughs> they took the tanks and raced back, and they uh, worked all night, uh, the, the, the crewmen, the sergeants, you know, getting these new tanks, bigger tanks, so you had more fuel. Now you got enough fuel to go all the way to Berlin and back. Mm. And uh, this was a heroic story. It's too bad that you just don't have time to put all these heroic right. stories in, but those guys made that last mission possible. If they hadn't gotten those tanks and got them fitted up overnight uh, and ready to go 6 a.m. tomorrow, here we are, we're all set, General. Uh, so there's another sub subplot that you could put, make, make a new story about it, right. a new film. Wow, that's great. Okay, well, um, audience, are there any questions? If you have any questions, you just jump in the aisle and get to uh, one of the microphones. Um, I'm sure that you can get your question answered. We're talking about the men now. We we know the movie, but what about the real deal? Uh, just like I was so surprised to find out that all the red tails were not pilots. I thought they were all pilots. Um, you, they were red tail mechanics, yeah. and any anybody who just who was a part of that project, that Tuskegee um, yeah. project, was considered a red tail. And the the, the ground crewmen kept that running. Uh, they told uh, they told Lee Archer, who was one of the uh, more famous pilots, that he come in, you know, with, with holes in the wings. Oh, Lieutenant, what have you done to my plane? <laughs> That's not your plane. You fly it. It's my plane. <laughs> <laughs> so they really took ownership, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, great. No, no questions for. Well, I tell you what. Um, uh, you have some copies of your book. Yeah, a few. Oh, you have a few. Know, but, uh, okay, you have a few. How many? How many is a few? <laughs> Six or eight. Yeah. Oh, okay. Were well, we? Yeah. Oh, we got to get rid of these books. We don't want you to leave with them. You brought them here. Here's a question right here. Okay. So I know you were talking about you know 
history and the, the families of the people who were Tuskegee Airmen, but how were they actually selected? Did they, you know, just sign up for the military or were they selected based on their, I guess, CV or resume? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, originally, uh, blacks were, when B.O. Davis, General Davis, uh, graduated from West Point, who would, well, what armed service do you want to go to? I said, I think I'll go, like, go in the Air Corps. Said, no, you can't because we don't have any black. You'll have to go in the infantry. So, uh, And guys would say, yeah, I'm ready to fight Pearl Harbor. I'm ready to go. And they said, well, we don't have any black uh, Air Force units, so you can go to the infantry. And uh, so they waited and waited. And you know the story about Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's uh, wife. He went down to Tuskegee and says, well, I heard that blacks can't fly planes. And Chief Anderson, who was a, a veteran pilot and the instructor down there, he said, well, I'll take you up for a ride, Mr. Roosevelt. You can tell by it for yourself. Well, the Secret Service, no, no, you can't go up in the plane. No, no, that's too dangerous. But she told him she was going anyway. And they called President Roosevelt and said, your wife wants to go up in the plane. And he said, well, anything she wants to do, she's going to do. I can't <laughs> So she went up and she said, well, that, you can't fly. Uh -huh. And she wrote an article about it in, her, in the newspaper. She had a column and whatnot. So uh, with stories like this, eventually they said, okay, okay, we'll see if you can fly. We'll, we'll have an experimental group and you can join up now. But they all assumed, no, it's not going to work. I know they can't fly. And... Uh, and uh, so uh, everybody just made the assumption that uh, it was going to fail. And uh, uh, but as you know, the story has a happy ending. They they proved that yeah, we can fly, sure. Uh, we can do anything the other guys can do. And uh, so that's how they had to kind of uh, get in the side door and uh, make it happen. Thank you. All right. Yes. Yeah, question. Good afternoon, Mr. Holloway. Uh, can you perhaps uh, give us a little insight into maybe how you were involved with the production of the movie, given that you you know you were the author of the book, but such as the movie rights or maybe the collaboration with the screenwriters or, or any of that okay. nature? Were you, um, could you maybe give us some insight as to what your participation might have been? Sometimes I think I'm a victim of, uh, of prejudice uh, because of an accident of birth over which I had no control. I wasn't born in Hollywood. And in Hollywood, uh, you know, everybody in Hollywood assumes, well, we're the only ones who know how to make movies. Even in Virginia can't make <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't have too much. They, they were nice to, to uh, pay me for using the book, but... Uh, after that, they, this is our ball. We'll take care of this now. You can just fade away into the. <laughs> well, given that, then maybe can you just uh, share with us your feelings on the movie itself, sir? Uh, on what? How do you feel about the finished product? Oh, yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Um, naturally, Hollywood isn't going to tell you. It's not a documentary, okay? Right. Yeah, they, they, yeah. I think the love story was made up. Although I asked one of them, I said, is it true that they have uh, love affairs? Or were they interested in getting married? Well, it's possible. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, I had never heard them tell me about it, but maybe it really uh, happened. So uh, I tried to give them a little bit of my, the benefit of my advice, which they didn't need at all and they didn't uh, follow. Uh, 
but even without my advice, I think what the final was was okay. It was very good. The Washington Post, as you may know, just said this is a terrible movie. Oh. And I was crying. I said, oh, they couldn't do that to my book. How could they do such a terrible thing to my book? And I didn't even want to go to see it. And then my friend said, oh, come on, let's go see it. And we went to see it. It was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody listens to the Washington Post. <laughs> you don't get, they don't get it. They just don't get it. call him up and interview him for the next edition. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's great. I uh, I wanted more of those stories of the crewmen and uh, got some, but uh, there's a lot more that I didn't get. So yeah, I'll have to talk to you later. You can tell me how to call him up. Yeah, thank you. Okay. All right. Well, this is great. Well, um, Mr. Holway, I want to thank you so very, very much um, for sharing with us today and. Uh, Thank you for the contribution you've made to African American history um, by telling the story. Um, so many times the story does not get told. And uh, I want to thank you for telling um, that story and helping uh, all of us to become more aware of the story that we need to know. And uh, he has these books here, and um, you'll sign them, won't you? Uh, I sure will. I broke my arm, but I can still write a little bit. <laughs> well, if, you, if they give you the 20 bucks, you really sign Oh, I, I signed real <laughs> Yeah, that makes the arm better, right? <laughs> and so we want to make sure he has a few books here. We don't want him to leave, leave with these books. Let's get these books and make this a part of your uh, library to help uh, him to be able to. Y'all want, y'all, both, y'all want one? Y'all want to get one? Okay, all right. Well, y'all make sure y'all get it. There's a lot of people want your book. You didn't bring enough. Well, they didn't send me enough. Uh, so oh, okay. All right. Put your name and address down, and I'll get in touch okay. when I get some more on order there. As soon okay. as they come in. All right, great. Well, we can get them right here at the front. Uh, let's thank our guests. Make sure. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, play another video for you. Um, this is a music video, right? Um, this is a music video. Uh, one of the cast members uh, of uh, the movie wrote uh, a theme song for it. And so you get an opportunity uh, to hear that now while we transition for the next guest. And uh, you can uh, move around once it gets started. Don't walk down that aisle until it gets started. And uh, then you can uh, freshen up if you'd like to uh, with your tea. Are you enjoying your tea? Yeah. yeah. All right, we're back, and uh, we're having an absolutely phenomenal time, and, um, but we have uh, a third guest here um, today. Uh, we have uh, a former captain uh, in the uh, U.S. Uh, Army, and uh, uh, we are grateful that she's here, Erica Jeffries, uh, who was an aviator. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, we need to understand about um, the, the whole transformation of what was the uh, the Air Corps uh, and uh, of the of the United States Army 
which later became um, the Air Force in 47, I think it was. It was after World War II, about 47. And uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting is that um, the Army still maintained um, an uh, aviation division after that, and it was um, sometime in the 80s when they went through a restructuring and took a, a different turn. And so one of the things, um, you'll notice something in the, um, the uh, Army aviation patch that um, there's a propeller uh, there, and uh, that is really symbolic of the turn that they took uh, when they kind of reorganized and restructured in the 80s. And so um, let's welcome our guest, Erica Jeffries. Today. Hey, Erica, welcome. Thank you. Um, we're glad you're here um, to share with us today and talk about it. Yeah, it's on. Um, we are, we're glad you're here to talk about um, your experience as an aviator in, in the Army. And let me just kind of begin by asking a, um, a question, and then I'm going to let uh, uh, Mike just kind of jump in here as well. Um, but uh, being an aviator, a female aviator, um, can you tell us if in any way the um, red tails impacted you, and if the red tails did, is there a particular aspect or a particular person involved that really just kind of gave you the gung-ho, want to do this kind of attitude? Well, there was, and um, I was first introduced to the Red Tails at Tuskegee Airmen when I was uh, a freshman in college, a plebe at West Point. We went down to the Tuskegee um, University, and we went to the Tuskegee Airmen Aviation Museum, and just beginning to learn that history way back then started to inspire me, but um, Mr. Holloway actually mentioned General Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., who um, was a West Point graduate, and I believe he graduated in 1936, and he was one of the, he was the second black general in the United States Army, his father was the first, as, as was mentioned, and he was hugely inspirational to me. He was a cadet at West Point as I was. He was um, silent all four years he was there, which means that he had to eat by himself, he had to room by himself, no one ever spoke to him, and his story was incredible for a young black cadet, not just a young black female, but any young black cadet at West Point to know the adversities that had been overcome and those that had gone before you. Um, so that was a huge inspiration, to know that he was an aviator, and I really, I, I didn't have grand aspirations as a child to be an Army aviator, but when I heard his story, and learned about um, some of the things that he did. And when I thought, gosh, what's the coolest thing I can do in the Army? I thought, probably flying helicopters. So um, I would say General Davis was a huge impact on my life. The, um, the whole aviation uh, division of the Army now, um, there are no pilots is that, uh, in terms of uh, aircraft. Uh, Airplanes. Airplanes. Right. They are, well, not in the Army. Right. The Army has rotary wings, is how they term all the helicopters. You know, helicopters shoot all kinds of stuff. And Some of them do. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, Black Hawks and stuff, you know. I was uh, back uh, after 
of September 11th, and they all of this became sacred airspace. One day I was uh, coming from home, riding down 395. I was actually on my way to church, and as I was coming down there, I was driving along, and I saw this helicopter sitting right in the middle of the highway, just kind of hovering over. And I saw these things on the side of it, <laughs> and you know, it didn't look like anything that was fun. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I was in trouble, um, but uh, I understood that at that time a, a plane had gotten uh, off course, and they were prepared to shoot it down. And they were sitting there just waiting on it. And I was like, man, I'm glad I'm not in that plane. So um, they're, they're, they're involved in combat and that kind of thing. In terms of women aviators, um, are women involved in combat? They are now. Um, I, was, I was hoping you'd ask me that because I wanted to give a little history about women in aviation. Um, and as was mentioned earlier, there's a, a long history of women in aviation, but so many people don't know about it. The first licensed female pilot was actually a woman named Harriet Quimby back in 1911. And all through, from 1911 on, people people know of course about the Wright brothers, but they don't know about Catherine Wright, their sister, who was also very instrumental in the first flight at Kitty Hawk. And um, all through World War One and Two, women were flying planes and test piloting aircraft, and they were never allowed to become part of the military until 1974, the Navy and then the Army followed and allowed women to go to flight school. But it wasn't until 1993 that women were actually allowed to fly in combat. So while women were flying in the military, flying in places like Panama and Grenada and other places, they were not considered combat pilots until 1993 when they were allowed to go into Desert Storm. So now women are all throughout aviation and front lines and behind the lines and all, all over the place. So. Wow. I got my feelings about that. Okay. I got my feelings about that. And this is it's not based on prejudice, it's not based on ability. Um it's like I don't want my mom fighting in a war. I mean I kind of I kind of feel and I guess is it is that chauvinist? Um, <laughs> it's not really because it's not about ability. It's it's really about care, um, and blaming on my grandmama um, that you know women are to be taken care of. They're sweet, they're gentle, and you know as a as a Christian man, our role is to be the priest. And it's just it's just difficult for me to digest just imagining um, that you know a woman in combat getting shot out of the sky. It's um, you know, and I, I know I'm going to the extreme, but it happens. Absolutely. Um, and so we, you know, we've seen it um, in this uh, recent war, um, whichever one it is, because you know it's a different war all the time. But you know, it's been a long one, mm -hmm. and we've seen this kind of thing um, happen. When did you ever, or did you ever feel as though um, that? kind of attitude or that kind of thinking uh, impacted assignments or opportunities? Absolutely, and it still does even today. I mean, like I said, women are flying on the front lines very much so, but that doesn't mean that the mindset or the um, some some of that chauvinism doesn't still exist. Um, it, I think Don't very call much, me chauvinism. I didn't call it chauvinism. <laughs> Generally speaking, there is chauvinism still in the military very much. 
and I think women have made tremendous advancements, and they're they're commanding. They're not just flying; they are commanding companies and battalions and brigades in aviation and in, in a lot of the other branches. So um, I can understand how you might feel that way, but I'll tell you, ask any female, not officer necessarily, not, but any female in the military, period, and they will tell you that I'm here because I'm just as good as the man standing next to me, and there are different standards for physical fitness, et cetera, but that's because of physiology, not because of of capability, and um, I think, I'm sure there are other women in the audience here that were in the military, and, and they would tell you the same thing, that anything you can do, I can do better. Well, let's go out across the country that I am anti-female aviator. That's not what I'm saying. And uh, some of y'all are going to carry the message wrong, so let me help y'all help you understand. I just shared some real feelings and concerns that I had, and it's not about ability to do. Right. Um, it's, um, I have the ability to do some things that some other guys can do, but I don't do it. So it's not about ability. It's about my own sensitivity to the, to, to the female, uh, the counterpart of the man that God made. <laughs> when, God, when, God, when God hooks that thing up. Can I get a, can I get a E flat? That's what my sensitivity, you know, kick it in now. Okay, Mike? <laughs> Take it from here. Look where you left me. I will say, I think that was the same sentiment that kept women out of combat for so long. Not because mm -hmm. so many people thought they couldn't do it, but because they're mothers and daughters and should be protected. And, and that was the mindset, so I, I understand that. Thank you. <laughs> I feel good in that. <laughs> well, um, I, I'll just say this. I've been obsessed with um, flight and aircraft as a child. I built my rockets the airplanes with the engines that you built in Baltimore. And I even worked for almost two years at the United States Museum. When I found out that um, Erica was a Black Hawk pilot, I about lost my mind. I could not even talk to her about it. But since she mentioned, I actually had her on my show. Um, she's also a White House fellow, in case you don't know that. But um, we were talking about that, and she mentioned that, and uh, almost just went into this off on a tangent talking about helicopters, but I, I just found it very exciting um, for someone to have that skill and ability. And um, you, you have to admit, she doesn't look like she was flying Blackhawk. Right? Not a Blackhawk. That was that thing that was sitting in the highway. Was that you? Yeah, and, um, you know, I don't know how many others followed you um, as far as being able to fly helicopters and to continue um, to do this in the military. And uh, I understand that it is a job. And um, do you think, um, or have you been in a situation where you could have actually used deadly force? I actually was not. I mm -hmm. spent 
four years at Fort Hood in Texas, um, just north of Austin, mm -hmm. and spent most of that four years at the National Training Center in Fort Irwin, California, mm -hmm. training to go get the bad guys. And unfortunately, my unit, I was moved out of my unit right before they went to Iraq. I did go, I fought to go as a civilian contractor um, once I got out of the military, but um, I, I actually was not in combat. But we had you here today, so I think that's a good thing, considering how many Blackhawks went down as well. But um, interestingly enough, this was a desire you had. It wasn't just a process you went through and then found that because of um, your intellect that you could proceed. You actually wanted to fly for some time. And um, just tell us, what was it about flying that um, impressed you the most that you really just sought after? I think um, I, had, I had never been in a helicopter until my first day of flight school, and I would see them, and like I said, General Davis's story and, and others before me, cadets that were senior to me who were going into aviation and learning about that, and I just thought, well, originally, I originally wanted to be a tanker. And and drive uh, tanks. Tank. <laughs> oh Lord! No. My mama in the tank. I did. I but women could not, and still cannot. There are still places where women cannot go, unfortunately, and that is the the infantry, the armor corps. Um, I wanted to be a tanker, and I could not. And I thought, well, helicopter's a tanker in the sky. And I thought, like I said, I just really, I thought this is a pretty unique thing to be able to do and when am I ever going to be able to fly an aircraft um, other than in the Army? Um, we know of course that, that you can fly in, in your private life as well but I just thought this would be something pretty exciting to do and because it wasn't that everybody could get it. You had to take certain tests, you had to have certain you know, vision and um, I, was, I was lucky enough, blessed enough to be able to make the cut. So. Wow. And tell us a little bit about that process. What did you have to go through to be able to become a pilot? To become a pilot from West Point, you had to have a certain rank um, mm -hmm. because you, meaning your GPA, you had to fall a certain place within your class because there are only so many slots for each of the branches within your class. So I had to have a certain GPA to be able to make the cutoff for, um, for aviation. And then you also had to take a test to make sure you had a certain amount of aptitude, and you had to have a, phys a physical as well. Like I said, you had to have 20-20 vision. You had to have, um, I guess that was about it. Um, so a couple of tests. Well, you don't know until you get there, and really, right. there are people that get to flight school and, and wash out because right. you just, it's it's a certain hand-eye coordination thing. It takes my mom always said, I can't believe it takes two feet and two hands, and you know she just couldn't understand that it would it was that um, involved. But mm -hmm. sometimes it's kind of like riding a bike, though. Once you learn how to do it, you got it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's all like dancing, right? Right. I can't dance. You need the right partner. I'll stay on the ground. <laughs> Have you flown any other types of aircraft besides helicopters? Or? I've only flown helicopters. I've flown three different kinds. Mm. Um, I was trained in the TH-67 Bell Jet Ranger, which is what pretty much everybody at Fort Rucker, Alabama gets trained on. Then I flew in OH-58 Kiowa Warriors, and then my advanced aircraft was the Black Hawk, and that's what I flew mostly in the Army. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> wow.
Okay. So, as an aviator, female aviator, are there any uh, pieces of uh, aviation history with regard to the military that we should probably have knowledge of? I mean, for instance, like, um, you know, the Red Tails, that was a, a piece of Army history that's really important. Are there any um, incidents with regard to um, women that we probably should be made aware of? There are, I'm sure, dozens of stories. And I, I really think that it's wonderful that you're doing a segment like this because it gives people an opportunity not only to learn about the Red Tails, but to learn about aviation, to learn about blacks in the military. And I would encourage everyone to go out and, and study that. I mean, there are there are books, and I really I should have brought some with me, actually, that I have about women who have... Um, have gone into combat who have been shot down. I have lost friends, female and male, who have died in Afghanistan and Iraq as aviators. And um, I, I can't point to a specific example, but I would encourage everybody to go out. And now, now you've challenged me, so I need to I need to go find some examples to share, um, which I will share with you to to let everybody else know. Okay. Um, I think it's interesting, and I want to let all, all of you know that uh, one of the deacons here, um, Dean, uh, William Dillard, um, who um, I asked to, to come, but he had a previous commitment and he could not come, um, was an Army a aviator in the 50s. And um, uh, I really wanted to get that perspective uh, because that was on the heels of the Red Tails after... World War II and what it was like um, to be, but he did uh, make mention um, that he had similar experiences as um, uh, those who were red tails with regard to um, uh, prejudice and racial prejudice. And so, um, did you uh, experience any kinds of racial um, prejudice? And I know that you know uh, with regard to your sex that there were prejudices, but racially, did you feel any kind of tension in that kind of thing? You know, there was, there, there was some, um, but mostly it was the gender discrimination. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of diversity in my battalion in Fort Hood. So there were a lot of Latinos, there were a lot of um, white, black, um, well, I guess I was, there weren't very many Asians, but there was there was a good amount of diversity in our unit. But I was the only female uh, aviation officer in my battalion for a while, and so that was difficult, mm -hmm. especially going into the field where you're in a tent with 15 men, and you're in the same tent, and men are disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can okay. you cut that? <laughs> cut that, cut that, yes, cut that, slice it. Um, um. No, but I was, I was fortunate. I was very, very fortunate because we had some, some pilots in command who were black. We had um, later pilots in command who were women. Um, so we, I saw, I was fortunate to be in an era of, of evolution, really, because, and it continues to evolve. So um, the gender discrimination was, 
significant. But again, just like with everything else, once you prove yourself, once you do your best at whatever it is and, and have a, a spirit of excellence at whatever it is you're doing and, and, and meet the standard and go beyond it, then you demand respect and, and you earn respect. And so, thankfully, I really didn't have a whole lot of issues after a while. Guess not. You passed all the tests. <laughs> you passed all the tests. He's like, you know, oh, you got to be at a certain rank in your class. I mean, that's West Point. <laughs> you, you're coming out of West Point. I mean, most of us in here could have got in there. <laughs> well, I couldn't. You know. Do they have reme- remedial classes? <laughs> yeah. I could probably get in there, but I mean, uh, when you talk about that that whole reality, you have just kind of excelled and 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 you're gifting. Um, the Bible is true, even though this is out of context and many people don't know it. But the Bible says that um, your gift will make room for you. Um, that's out of context. We don't understand. You read that, you understand why. But um, many people use it in that context, and it's really true that your gifting opens doors for you. Um, the doors that you could not open, your gifts can open. Um, let's see if we have some questions um, from uh, our audience here today, and I'll see if I got anybody. In case y'all think I'm sitting here on my phone, no, I'm checking out people are, you know, tweeting. Tweeting? Tweeting? What are they doing? Tweeting. Okay. Right. Or tweeting and Facebooking. All of that. Okay. Alright. Um, my question was um most around something that you said, I don't know if you said it on purpose or not, but when you were talk um when Michael had asked you, did you go into combat and you said unfortunately I wasn't able to go to Iraq and I know that in the movie, um, a lot of times they were desiring and excited to go into combat. Um, is that something that, I guess, maybe not just aviators, but anybody in the military, is that something we look at civilians like that's so unfortunate, and when you hear about somebody going to Iraq or Afghanistan, it's like, oh no, that number got called. But it seems like, you know, there may be some passion there to, a desire to go into that and actually use the training that you acquired. I mean, is that true? Is, did you find that? Um, when we went into war, that that was something that you wanted to experience? Or? It was. That That's a good question. And I can't speak for everybody in the military. I'm not going to try to. But I know for me and a lot of people that I do know, um, it's like you're an athlete and you're training for the Olympics and you're training every day and trying to become the best at what you do and then you don't get to go to the Olympic Games. And um, for me, hold on. That's uh, that's exactly how I felt, and I think um, <clears throat> a lot of people. Most, like I said, I can't speak for everybody in the military, but you train to serve your country, and not that you're not serving your country within these continental United States, because you most certainly are. And it's not that you are not serving your country, even if you're on reserve status or National Guard or whatever it is, and not wearing a uniform every day, but you train because you want to fight and you want to um, protect those rights and civil liberties that our fellow Americans all have. And so I did feel very deprived. I felt I was I was very disappointed not to be able to go. Um, I was I was medically retired in 2003, and if I had not been, I would still be in the military right now because I loved every minute of it. Minute of it. 
lot of people that I've worked with that come back from war, they never ever hear that, and that's one of the first things that I say when I do the debrief. So really, I do applaud your service, even though you feel like you were deprived of being able to serve overseas and serve your country um, in wartime. And also, um, Dr. Smith, I wanted to also let you know um, that even though um, women who are serving in the military... Oh, no, cut yeah, the mic, cut the mic. I don't know how to say this issue, but I just want to say that um, we do... I, I, I certainly understand what you're feeling, but as um, a daughter of someone who went and served in the military for his entire career. My father's a Navy SEAL and um, he did get shot while he was um, in Afghanistan and thankfully he survived. Um, but it was really a trying um, experience and it's one of those things where not only do we I, I think that when we think about um, being chauvinist and being and caring for um, women, I think that as men, um, as as women who care for men, that I often think about, you know, I care for my husband, my father, and if I had a brother, I'd care for my brother as well. So I just wanted to put that out in the universe. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, so, okay. Well, Erica, I have the same, uh, as the pastor said, I just say wow when I found out that you were an aviator and want to thank you for your service. And I kind of had the same question that this gentleman over here had asked and your answer. When I watched the movie, I was kind of thinking when they were excited about when they were getting ready to go into combat. And with your answer, that made me understand. You said, like, when you were training for the Olympics, then you don't get to go, the disappointment. Um, I would have to think at the same time that you want to go, I, I would think that you still have afraid, maybe. I mean, how do you overcome that? Um, were you afraid at all, I guess I want to ask you? Yeah, absolutely. And you have, of course, like they said in the movie, um, Anybody that tells you they're not afraid of dying is lying to you. And um, so, yes, you definitely have fear. But at the same time, you, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a cliche now, but the, the people standing next to you, I mean, you're the soldier that's next to you, the soldier that's in front of you or behind you, you're doing it for them. If you're leading people, you're, you're doing it for them. And, and you don't think about the fear as much as you think about making sure the person next to you is okay. Um, and it's scary, and, and you see horrible things, and, and I don't want to derail the conversation by, by taking it in a totally different direction, but there are, there are a lot of things that um, people have experienced in war, and you see the after effects of it when they come home, and it's called post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's a new term that people haven't heard, you know, hadn't heard within the last 10 years or so, and now most people know what PTSD is. Um, our Vietnam veterans, our Korean War veterans, our current uh, Iraq and Afghanistan OIF, OEF veterans experience it every day. And since we're streaming in front of a whole bunch of people, I want to put it out there that um, the mental health provision in this com country is not what it should be. And the Veterans Administration is doing what it can 
um, not doing enough. And there are veterans all across this country, men and women who are living every day with nightmares and seizures and traumatic brain injuries and alcoholism and drug abuse and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Domestic violence. Domestic violence, mm -hmm. very much so. And um, suicide is at its highest in the military today. And um, it's a very real issue and it's very personal for me as well, um, for my family. And I just want people to be aware of it and to know if there's anything you can do, do it. Um, and, and I appreciate everybody that said thank you for your service. And I'm, all, the, all the other military veterans in here, please stand. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you very much, Erica. I, I would imagine that there is some fear, but just to hear you explain it that way, thank you. I, you know, when I ask the question, some people are like, of course you are. But just to, you know, I've never personally spoke, asked someone that question, so just thank you for your uh, explanation. And again, thank you for your service. And I have the highest respect for the military. Thank you. John, you gonna be our last question? Okay, um, and I'll just start by saying thank you so much for bringing up the issue of PTSD. Um, it is a very significant issue. I'm the child of a Vietnam vet who suffers from PTSD, and I think it's had a tremendous impact on at least people in my generation, Generation X, who had a lot of fathers from urban environments who were drafted to Vietnam, and I think it had a critical impact on the evolution of the black family and a lot of the issues that cropped up in black families in the late 60s, early 70s. So thank you for shedding light on that. I also wanted to just say, you know I love you. You're the best. And when you said, wow, I can't believe she flew Black Hawk, I thought, Erica's the only Black Hawk copter pilot that I know. So, you know, it is you know. But, um, you know, just to lighten things up a bit, um, I just thought I wanted to get your perspective as a pilot, as someone who was tremendously influenced by the Tuskegee Airmen and choosing your career path, what is something that if you had a chance to work something into the script or to redraft the script, what would you add into um, the script for um, Red Tail? Well, that's a good question. I, I had some thoughts and feelings about the movie after I saw it. I thought it was a very well done movie. I, I thought it was um, excellent that that story is now again being told. Um, and I don't know the background on this, but my comment was, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that the character played by Terrence Howard in the movie, his name was Bullard, Colonel Bullard. And I said, why did they say Colonel Benjamin O. Davis? You know, people should know the real names of these men who were flying these aircraft and putting their lives on the line. And, and you can research it and know, but I thought, man, it would sure be nice to be able to see um, a, a man today playing a Lee Archer or playing a Ben Davis or playing, you know, any of these other famous or not so famous Tuskegee Airmen um, who actually existed. So that was that was one thing. And the other thing I think um, I I would have liked to see a little bit more of the the history and the struggle. Um, the movie started right as the the experiment was beginning, and um, there was there was such a long history that came before that of of getting to the point of the Tuskegee experiment that was not told. Um, so I, I wanted, because so, just like so many other things in, in mainstream media today, 
Americans get their knowledge from the snippet they see on TV or the, the movie that they saw last week, and, and then they feel like they know everything there is to know about that particular topic. And I really um, wish they would have done a little bit more on, on the struggle and the history that came before, because as was alluded to earlier about um, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt going to um, the Tuskegee Army Airfield, that was significant because the program, the experiment, was already underway, and it was underway for about six months or almost a year, and they decided, Congress was deciding to cancel the program entirely. And if she had not gone, and if she had not written an article, and if she had not encouraged her husband to take notice of this unit down in Alabama, then there would have been no Tuskegee Airmen. So um, I would have liked to see that in the movie as well. Thank you. All right, there's one more. Hi, very good. Hi. Forgive me my uh, accent. <laughs> um, every job, there's a challenges. So I know a female like you are in high position. Well, truth seekers, we just finished the end of another great show. And um, just appreciate you tuning in. I know the show is a lot longer than it has been normally, but um, we'll try to get a little bit more in there and a re-edit, and hopefully um, we'll be able to end this off with um, just a, a, a bit more content than you were able to get on this first live um, airing. But um, we'll do something new with the podcast to make sure you get some more out of it. Well, special thanks to our producer, Pastor Smith, and all the members of Mount Zion. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.